What up, young slum lords and ladies? This is Jake Lapp, and welcome to the Young Slum Lords Podcast, where me and Caleb Henshaw talk our shiz and hopefully help spark the idea for finding your financial independence in this paycheck-to-paycheck world. Welcome back, everybody. This week, we've got a really cool guest. I actually met Matt through a, a secondary relationship it's actually the guy who does my cash value life insurance plan which we're gonna have him on the podcast at some point too because i think that's really important for guys you know especially at our age you know going through all that getting the a really good long-term rate on on life insurance and cash value life insurance that can be used as an asset he was just like oh yeah like jake he does real estate matt he does real estate you guys should connect and gave us a little introduction and Matt had actually reached out to me and we talked for an hour or so on the phone and he told me his story and I told him mine and, you know, we just meshed well and he started listening to some of the podcasts, made sure that, you know, this is the the type of stuff that he can get behind and he's listened to a bunch of the episodes and, you know, here he is. So with that, want to welcome Matt. What's going on, man? Hey guys, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and, uh, Really appreciate what you guys are doing, sharing real great practical information. So Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you said you've been in the real estate business for 21 years at this point. Yeah, 21 years, man. I finished up college. I went to a school in Central PA, uh, and then I had to go find myself. I traveled the country for 58 days. I moved out to Santa Barbara, California for a year, and then um, I called my best buddy up from first grade. He was back east, and I convinced him to quit his job, and we went the entrepreneurial route. Uh, we had a six month stint in day trading, which didn't work out well, but then, then we got our real estate license and, um, and it was, uh, we started out for, uh, four buddies, uh, living in Maniunk renting for a thousand dollars a month at about 23, 24 years old. And, and then we said, guys, well, let's go buy a place. And we bought a place in Conshohocken. So did that for a couple of years. And, and until we made a two year partnership because everybody was going on with their significant others after that. And um, so we, we did well on that one. And then uh, Eric and I bought a property, gained a bunch of partners and uh, literally a whole bunch of partners. We created a limited partnership. The smallest partner was 500 bucks. The largest partner uh, was 10, 15,000 bucks. And uh, we, we bought a purchased another property, single family detached home. Um, and uh, we learned a lot. We took that. We rented it out for many years. And then we learned about land subdivision. We partnered with the neighbor, turned two lots into five lots. So various different stories along the way. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. I want to go back uh, on a couple of things that you talked about. The first, what did you go to college for? Uh, I went to, to be a history teacher. Okay. Well, and a, a, a history teacher and a coach. And uh, although I never ended up teaching uh, in the, in the uh, secondary ed in the classroom, I, ha- I teach a lot of real estate and I coached uh, high school wrestling for uh, 15 years. Oh, awesome. So then when you said that you and four buddies went in and bought a place because you were tired of renting, how did that actually work? Like, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, so I'm just trying to like think about it because, you know, I we've oh. all sat in the basement in high school and we're like, man, you know, renting stinks. We should all buy a place. And then that's kind of like where that starts and ends is more like that. Oh, yeah, we should. And then it's like, oh, you need lawyers involved. You need, you know all this stuff contracts and like you know partnership splits and equity deals and all all that kind of stuff so So, yeah how did you take it to the next level of actually like signing it and buying a place with a group of friends 
Yeah, so it was about the time we first got our real estate license, and instead of in the basement, we sat on the roof of our place in uh, Maniunk at uh, 123 Green Lane, and it was four buddies talking about how we're going to figure it out. Uh, one of my buddies, very good buddies I grew up with as an electrician, so very handy. And uh, between the three others of us, we, talked to, we went and talked to a lender. We talked about what it would take to get involved with uh, four of us, how we would apply for a loan. So, you know, we started from the ground up. We went out and talked to everybody, got the... Uh, learned about limited partnerships and what's involved with that. And again, our basis was four buddies who grew up together. So we were confident in the partnership, but we made a pact, to be honest with you, where we said, hey, if any of this goes south because of money, we're just going to call it a day and stay friends. And, um, and so we just went and met with everybody and everybody gave us pieces of the answer. And collectively, four friends, we, we, we made it a goal. And within, uh, man, I think it was within a year, year and a half of that, Mark, we ended up buying a place uh, and uh, I don't know how we got underwritten for a loan. We had very limited job <laughs> history, but somehow it, somehow it worked out. So the answer to the question is just you get bits of piece, bit, little bits of information from everybody. Sure. And you got to be willing to take the risk. I've learned about partnerships. They don't last. In this particular partnership, we uh, gave ourselves a two-year time limit so everybody could move on in life. And uh, everything worked out on that one. So what was your guys' goals going into that deal? The goal of that one was very basic, that we were paying about $1,100 a month in rent, and let's put this toward a house. Okay. And when we went to buy a house, uh, man, let's say it was 2001, 2002, people felt it was too high in the market. Like, I can't believe you're buying that place for $110,000, yeah. um, and you can't do it. But what you learn and what you, the path you guys are going is you, you do what you believe is right, not what others tell you is right. And nobody knew what we were doing. Nobody was like, all right, you just do this, this, and this. We're just committed. We have the entrepreneurial spirit. So we just we just figured it out. How did it work with money? Like, I, you know, I'm sure money was tight. Like, you guys were a bunch of broke college kids, like, pulling money together. And then the disbursement, like, the way that I'm thinking about it is, oh, you know, we buy this house, our mortgage is 1000 bucks a month. You know, we all put this money down. We split it four ways. And then we live here together. Like, what was the the... And end goal of that? Were you trying to flip it? Were you trying to keep it as a long-term rental? Did you have those goals? Uh, no, we didn't really know where it would end up in a, in a two years. Once we, you know, we were smart enough or not smart enough, depending on how you look at it, to think ahead two years. But our goal was we just kept track of the expenses, and it was just a limited mindset. Going instead of paying someone else's mortgage, we want to pay down our own mortgage. Sure. So we didn't overthink it. We didn't know any more than that. And, you know, in two years, we bought it for 110 and sold it for 167 So when you're in your early 20s, and, you know, that was more than any of us had. Uh, when we started out, we all, I think we all threw in like 2500 bucks each. And it was pretty much our savings for everybody. And, and, and um, we got it to work out. So I'm assuming that you guys created an LLC. Uh, we, we, uh, for that one, uh, we might have been a limited partnership. might have okay. been an LLC. Okay. So you guys are all equal shareholders of said partnership of set of the house. Now, when you go to actually make the payments and, and do like just the down payment part, like if, if everyone's putting, you know, 2,500, I thought on an LLC, it has to be a investment. Like you can't buy a primary residence necessarily in an LLC or did you guys? 
No, the the underwriting guidelines were different then. Okay. And we were able to we you know we were able to buy a primary in the structure we had. But I okay. can tell you that the that was before the the Great Recession, and that was the underwriting guidelines were were definitely different. But you, when you were asking that question about the money, one interesting thing is one like I mentioned, one of the guys was very handy. And uh, we had that discussion before we started the partnership because we're like, hey, if we're going to live here for two years, what can we do to increase the value of this place? And uh, he wanted to do work. So we, we, had, we were able to work it out where we all paid for the supplies and he would increase his equity position by spending the hours doing the work. So we didn't have to pay him. So we got into details like that. That's cool. So was it, was it actually like he was just getting a higher than everyone else return and still putting in the same amount of money? Or was he trading putting money in for that cut of equity? Exactly. He was trading, okay. putting money in. And it, it, that gets real tricky for anybody yeah. who does it out there because I see in today's world where you have the money person and then you have the equity person and somebody's on the beach this summer and they're working over the person who's sweating at the property. And yeah. it, it's a fine line. It, it took extra, extra communication. There were bumps in the road. But 20 years later, we're all still best buddies. So it, That's it, awesome. it worked out for sure. Would you recommend this to people in like the same age group, you know, just starting out in college, 18, 19 years old, maybe 20, you know, just renting in a college town. They got a couple grand saved up between everybody. Would you recommend them to do this exact same thing? Oh, absolutely. Because you are going to get so much experience that you're never going to get in the classroom. So if you go and you do it, maybe, maybe you do need mom and dad's help. That's cool. But the experience you're going to get, you're going to get experience as a homeowner. You're going to get experience as a partnership and a partnership. There's lots of ups and downs and a lot, you need a lot of communication. So would absolutely recommend it so that you gain the experience. And now you're 22, 23 and you can decide, all right, I like the partnership or Hey, no, I didn't like the partnership. I'm going to go it alone because I see what you guys are doing. I, I, I don't think it's too long before people are, are saying, hey, guys, uh, we have some money. Are you willing to invest it? And you guys are going to have that opportunity coming up where it's going to be like, nah, we'd rather we don't want to answer to anybody. We like right. doing our stuff ourselves. Are you going to be like, man, we can get a 10 unit if we get five partners together? Right. I was just having that conversation with Ben. So I want to keep going on like your chronological steps to where you're at now, but for everyone listening, I kind of want to skip ahead real quick to like where you're at now, what you're doing full time, like what you're holding, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, right now I have a, a real estate brokerage in Conshohocken, uh, a Remax office with my best buddy who I grew up with. Uh, we started it from one agent. Now we're 39 agents. So that's our, our grind every day is, uh, you know, helping everybody out. We built it on uh a brokerage on one-on-one -on -one training and helping agents, um, whether they're investors or just helping people look for their primary. So uh, that's what we're doing now. I've had 10 units, but right now I have six units. Okay. So it, we were talking about it on the phone, but it seemed like in, on your team, you had a lot of guys who were like-minded, like how we are, how you are, like people that have had that spirit and have, you know, started house hacking, have a couple multifamilies, like what you were telling me, like you had a ton of guys on your team that, that were doing that. How did you like attract that group of people? I'm, I'm just curious. I feel like it's a very niche group. Like you go to most real estate teams and that is not the common thread. No, it, it starts because my partner Eric and I started as investors. Okay. And so it's, we're very, it's very easy to relate to that. Sure. And remember, from the realtor perspective, it's the long term game is if, you know, generally the investments are less value, so you earn less commission. Yep. But it's about building the long term relationship. And 
And, um, you know, Eric and I just got used to knowing the investors. We do a good job for the investors. And then then it's, then we started helping their family, friends. You know, we do investments in primary residence and all that stuff. And then when new agents were coming in, they can clearly talk to Eric and I and recognize that, yeah, we have a background in investments. We know HUD homes. Mm-hmm. We know multi-units. We, we just know it from experience. And, and quite frankly, there's a lot of realtors who do amazing jobs, but they just don't have any interest in the investment. Sure. Um, and so by we're just we're just able to relate to it. So for all the investors and we have many in the office um, and we're just able no matter what they want to do, which avenue they we have fix and flip. We have long term rental people. We have land development people. So it just goes along the spectrum of different uh, what you can do with your real estate license. That's awesome. And you guys also do property management, right? We do do property management. Yeah. Within that. Yeah. So how has that been? Like, I feel like unless you really love the property management, I feel like that's something that a lot of investors want to step away from. You guys step towards it. Why? Why? Uh, because of the Great Recession. Okay. So uh, to be honest with you, I never had any interest in doing property management. And then 2007, eight hit. And then what happened is by the time it was 2010 or 11, you know, we were managing our properties. We had all the experience. We knew what we were doing or we knew what we were learning throughout the process, making our own mistakes. And then all of a sudden people wanted to move on in 2011, 12 and 13, but yet they, they wanted to move in with a significant other, but yet they didn't have the equity uh, in their home to sell it. So all of a sudden it was like, all right, well, I'll manage your property. All mm-hmm. right, I'll manage your property. So it's just word of mouth. And, okay. and that's how it, how it grew. No, that that's awesome. So that's kind of a good picture of where you're at now. Take us from, okay, two years later after me and my buddies bought this place, we sold it, we made a little profit. Like what was your next step in, in life and in, then in investing? Yeah, well, actually I came across my, uh, I, I was married once, it didn't work out in my mid-20s, early, yeah, mid-20s. And uh, so after I was actually, it was a twin that we sold um, and the other half, um, I found out the gentleman next door wanted to sell it. So it was actually really interesting. I knew we were about to sell our house in the in the 160-ish range, and uh, he wanted to sell next door for 120. <laughs> so my then fiance and I bought next door no at 120, way. knowing that we were going to uh, be selling the next place. So oh, bought that man. place. Yeah, that. So obviously we uh, we lived there for a year. Things didn't work out, and we moved on from that one. And then. Um, then I bought a condo up in Lansdale in Chatham Village um, while I was just trying to get things worked out. And I hung on to that one and rented that out for many years. And then uh, I, I bought a, um, a place, moved back to Conchhocken with one buddy and uh, lived there for two years. And um, we lived there for two. We still own that place. And then him and I went on our separate ways. And then I, I bought a quadplex using FHA financing, uh, the greatest investment uh, I made probably 13-ish years ago and, and, um, was living in the one unit and, um, all the other units were, uh, were paying for every, literally everything. Yeah. And, um, and a great investment, uh, from that. So I want to ask about that because we were recently looking at fourplexes in our area to do an FHA on. And as we're looking through these buildings and trying to imagine like an FHA inspection process for these places, it seemed like an absolute nightmare of just how many, how many things would be on that checklist to get the approval for the loan. Um, you're in the same area we are. A lot of old buildings here. Was that a similar scenario you ran into with a long checklist with a lot of back and forth? Yeah, it was a it was a long checklist uh, even then. Uh, but we had a seller who wanted to sell and uh, was willing to make up and take care of everything and get it all squared away. What year was that? It was 2007 or eight. 2007 because it was before everything went 
crazy. Can we like dive into this particular deal? Like what you bought it for, what it was renting. Do you know, do you remember that stuff? I know I'm sure it was a, a while ago. Oh man, it was a while ago. Bought it. I think if I remember 365 and, um, what were the rents? Gosh, uh, one rent was two or three of them were rented in, in the 600 range and maybe one was 700 and then the other one I moved into. Okay. So you're buying for upper 300s, 365. You're bringing in, you know, two, 2000 a month, roughly while you live there. Yeah. What th- that would be cutting it pretty close with your mortgage payment, right? Like, were you still paying something or was it covering everything completely? Yeah, it's been a long time, but it was just about, well, I wasn't paying much to live there. Right, right. Uh, if, if anything, I wasn't making a killing or anything by right. by living there, but it was just, it was three and a half percent down off 365 right. and whatever the rates were then. Did you end up um, refining out of that FHA loan? No, I still have an FHA loan uh, today. I think there was, uh, there was a, um, oh man, I did something along the way. I, uh, there was a, I'm blanking on the word, but uh, got a lower rate. Uh, got it to work out, and 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 now it's it's very good cash flow. That's, I'm that's sure, great. It is. yeah, because we're looking at the on the deals that we analyze with FHA on these quads. The the PMI uh, was yeah, like the, the th- over three hundred dollars yeah, in that price bucks. range. That once you would refi, you could just get rid of yeah, that, delete it, pretty much. Yeah. So, do you know what you're paying still on, on the on the PMI at that place? Uh, I got it's gone because remember I passed the amount of years where you needed it, and the value went up. So the loan to value ratio covers it now. Oh, because remember, I think in FHA, if I remember right, seventy-eight percent loan to value. I but it's it's locked in for a certain number of years. Again, I'm just talking off the top of my head. Okay, yeah, we, I've been under the impression that it's like Forever. the life of the loan, yeah. the thirty years you're paying that PMI. It doesn't go away. You don't. But I could be wrong as well. I I'm not sure. But seventy-eight percent, hundred percent. Like I'm sure that building is worth a lot more than three sixty-five now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So no, that's that's awesome. So. And in this, you know, you bought the twin, you bought the condo, you bought this four unit. This is still while you and Eric are building your your business and your team at the same time. This is what you're doing full time. Yeah. So we're, we're actually at, at that point, we're uh, realtors by day. We don't own an office yet. And we're working uh, in a restaurant at night, okay. uh, bartending, waiting tables, just making ends meet. And yeah. um, and we're, we're regular realtors. And um and uh, it actually, it was funny. We didn't intend to be realtor, like full-time realtors. We only started out to be investors. And it was about two or three years in when Eric and I were like, wait a second, we can actually make more money being full-time realtors than doing a little bit of real estate and working at the restaurant. Yeah. So then we ended up being realtors for a number of years. And in about 2010, we're like, we took the jump to, we wanted to go down. Eric and I love teaching, coaching, and training. It's just a natural passion of ours. Mm-hmm. So we, we that's when we got into a brokerage and, again, started with one. Now it's at 39 and, and a great group of people, and we're very fortunate. Well, I mean, that's an amazing pipeline to get, you know, A, new realtors on your team, and then also B, to educate people about their ability to buy houses at the same time and kind of just do both so you can get people to join your team and then also sales for houses. So I think that's an amazing strategy for your business. Oh, it was it was great. That reminds me of when when Eric and I started. And we'd go out to the the HUD homes and everything. But not only were we helping an investor, we were going to make a few dollars, and we were learning the market. It was it was amazing. Like so, I'm out all Saturday, and if they didn't find anything they like, I just looked at six to eight homes, 
So I know the market better. And oh, it just uh, you're getting a two for one every time you're out. Still to this day, we get it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if when when you guys were at that age, you know, mid twenties, early twenties, did you have did you experience like a hard time as a as an investor? Did pe- do you th- did you feel that people looked at you with less? Um, with, like, like you weren't as as well established as somebody who's been around for a while so that you weren't like treated as seriously as someone, you know, a lot of investors that we know are much older than we are. So it was kind of like a, you know, a first impression uh, issue. Yeah. Oh, and, and I have a baby face and I, I dealt with that all the time. And it was frustrating because here I am grinding it out and, and nobody would help me. Nobody would take Eric and I seriously. And we were told to get out of real estate many times. And you went to school for X, Y, and Z, and you're not doing it. And uh, there are many times, and we just, you know, being an entrepreneur, you gotta, you gotta stay, stay with it. And and you're gonna get a lot of people who, who uh, people who we are very good friends with today uh, said negative things mm-hmm. uh, back then. And it's just, you know, it's just not knowing, and and you just forge ahead and and figure it out. But yeah, you deal with that all the time. One of, matter of fact, when uh, it gets so again, like I teach a lot of new real estate agents. And I get so frustrated when people who have been in the business 27 years try to take advantage of the new realtor because just because they're new, age doesn't matter. And it gets so I have a that's a, that 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 really bothers me. It's yeah. like, hey, someone here wants information; they're going to figure it out, and and let's help them. So now, going even before you guys started in real estate, you know, do you do you think back on like something like what what was it that kind of sparked that entrepreneur? in you like that made you you know want more um than the nine to five till you're 65 like what do you do you think back on like what that was in your life oh yeah yeah i know exactly what that was for me so i grew up with a wrestling background and wrestling is a sport where you're one-on-one on the mat no one your success or failure depends on yourself you cannot blame anybody you cannot blame a teammate so I grew up with that mentality. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I was walking through the, the main building on my college campus, and there was a sign for start your own painting business. So my freshman summer, uh, my buddies and I, we bought a painting franchise, and you had to figure it out. Your, your income was tied to as, as hard as you were willing to work, and, and anything you lost, you were responsible for it. So uh, starting a painting business or buying a franchise at 18, year, 18 years old kind of lit the fire. That's so awesome. Like I, we had talked about that on the phone, but like that was almost identical to me. Like I started my own painting business when I was 19 in school. And like, I think without doing that, I I would be in a very different place. Like that transformed my outlook on working for the rest of my life. Cause I, you know, you start, you're going into business for yourself and you're like, wow, like I'm making hundred dollars an hour, $200 an hour by having all these other guys work and putting these systems in place and just grinding it out constantly and seeing the reward. Like the nine to five doesn't appreciate that grind. It doesn't matter. You, you get paid a salary, you get paid your hourly amount, you work faster, you work slower. No one really cares. You know, if, if it's a good job, you know, they'll, they'll appreciate it. And you know, you'll get your, your, your bonus the next year or whatever it is. But that, like that hustle you're talking about of that, is not for everybody because there's a lot of risk right. involved with that. There's so oh. much stress involved with that. There's so much uncertainty, fear, and doubt that you've got to go through every single day you're going through this. And like, you know, it can take some years off your life, give you some gray hairs. You know, some days are much worse than others. But, you know, at the end of the day, once you build something and you can like stop trading your time for money, it's just yeah. you break free. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you. And, and the second painting job we were on, we actually got kicked off the site. So here we are. We bought a painting business. The second job we're on, a gentleman comes home. I know exactly where it was in Lansdowne. And uh, what we were taught in it to do is to walk around the person around the house to show them the, the paint job. And uh, after walking them around, it was 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. And uh, it was actually kind of funny because the, his wife was home prior and we're 18, 19 years old and she offered us beers. So we took a beer at the end of the workday and we're really excited. And he walks around the house and he says, I'm giving you five minutes to get off my property and do not come back. So we got literally got kicked off. And I tell you that story because... We had to make some tough decisions after that. Like, man, we went down this path. We just got kicked in the teeth. And uh, fortunately, we stuck with it. We worked it out and we kept going. But being an entrepreneur, you get kicked in the teeth a lot. Sure. And it's and that was a that was an eye opening moment where like we were my buddies, and a couple, my, my buddies were sitting in the car talking like, hey, maybe we made the wrong decision this summer. Let's just go get regular jobs. Mm. And we stuck with it. But boy, we got kicked in the teeth early. Yeah. So why did why did he kick you guys out? Like, was there a reason? Oh, there was a reason because <laughs> we bought a painting franchise, but we didn't know how to paint. And the franchise, we and the franchise we bought it from gave us a half day of training. So, you, uh, what I've learned is you do not paint a metal door in the middle of a summer day. Yeah. Uh, vinyl windows we painted shut. Yes, vinyl windows we painted shut. You got to remember we were entrepreneurs. We just didn't we didn't know how to. I know how to paint well now. Sure. But we had we had no idea. I mean, literally, we painted vinyl windows shut. Yeah. And, and, but that's so like, I think that's such a good story. Like when I started the painting business, I was going to school for painting. I was learning painting. Like we made a ton of mistakes in, during the business. I would take on any job that anyone would throw at us is like, Oh, do you do this? And it's like, yep. Like it, uh, the, the instinct is yes. But that, that just goes to show you guys did know, n- knew nothing about painting, but started a painting business. Who cares? Yes. It like anyone can do that, and I, that's the thing that I I try to preach because it's like that's how I got my start from painting at night and on the weekends was how I bought the first triplex like that. It was hand in hand. I wouldn't have the same savings rate if I was working a normal job making whatever twenty bucks an hour. It it just doesn't work that way. I think that um, kicking the teeth you're talking about is a vital part of any entrepreneur's like growth, and like you just you never forget that like experience and it just either makes you stop in your tracks and then you give up forever or it just like makes you think back like reflect on the mistakes you made what mindset made you make those mistakes and then you know grow as a person to be better because i still remember you know i'm a tech guy i've always been working in tech and i had a, a side business doing it and i remember my mistakes of you know irreversible problems that you know i had to just take and like i'll never forget you know helping having somebody lose all their data for like 10 years on a hard drive you know that was all my fault you know and that look on their face never gonna go away you know and like that just leads you to pay more attention to detail or or whatever it is that help you grow yeah you're so right and 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 that's it's just it's just the learning curve because you asked me that question earlier about someone who's 18 19 or 20 should they try it out in that college town or wherever they're living absolutely because if you're going to get kicked in the teeth, I mean, matter get of fact, when, yeah, get kicked young. When an, a new investor will come in the office, and whether it's me or somebody on the team who's trying to help them, and they're like, uh, I'm, you know, I want to flip properties, or they're starting, because everybody's starting, you know, at different points. And and someone will ask me, he's like, how do you want that investor to do on their first investment? Do you want them to hit a home run, 
get killed or break even. And the truth of the matter is I want an investor to do break even or make a few dollars on the first one, because if they go and they hit a home run, it's a false sense of security. They're going to go bigger the next time around and they're probably going to get kicked in the teeth. And now they spent more money. And the truth is, if they bought a bad deal and they get crushed on the first one, they're probably going to never do it again. And it's just because they, it was wrong timing, wrong place and all that stuff. So from an experience perspective, I hope someone gets in that first one. They break even. They make a few bucks, but they get all the experience. And now they can figure out, all right, I like flipping. No, I don't like flipping. I like to buy and hold. All right. That's what I want to do. So I think from an experience standpoint, I don't want them to get kicked in the teeth that first one. Sure. So like you're you're in the the future of where we are going you know like we're, this is you're the the track that at least me personally I'm is I'm going towards and like you know we're doing the podcast and we're talking to all these people um friends 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 you know whatever and like encouraging this this mindset shift this you know have you considered oh you're looking for a single house have you considered buying a duplex like i'm sure through the years you've done that for hundreds, if not thousands of people, how, how has your success rate, I guess, been with that? Like, I feel like we, we had a friend on talking about stocks and stuff and we're, cause I'm trying to, I was trying to learn at that time, you know, we wanted our audience to kind of learn about stuff and it was kind of like, I, he's just like, dude, I don't give anyone advice ever. Because if it goes good, they're a genius. If it goes bad, you told them to do something. So you've been in this teacher mode, mentor, helper, boss, you know, that's been your track. Have you had guys, you know, get into over their head? Have you had guys, you know, get kicked in the teeth right away? And like, how has that process been? That it's absolutely happened. Okay. Absolutely happened. And what it is, is I share information like I want information shared with me. I don't want anybody to make a decision for me. I feed me all the information and let me be responsible for my decision. So when I start out with investors, uh, they again or new realtors, it's like I'm going to give them all the information and they're going to make the best decisions for themselves. So um, it, it, when the when they hit the home runs or if they get kicked in the teeth, like for example, I've seen partnerships fail 100% because yeah, I see it a mile away now. Earlier in my career, I didn't see it. But you have the money person and then the sweat equity person, and they got this great plan. Everybody's thinking, "Oh, everything's going to work out great," but I and now you just know that it's never going to balance out. The as much as it's so hard for the sweat equity person to understand the person with money, and vice versa. Like it's just because because what happens when the project's four weeks late? Well, now the money person is getting all over the sweat equity person who's been busting sweat equity, their ass yeah who's, who's been and and imagine you're in the attic you're in the basement and someone's busting your chops and you're like i haven't been home in four sundays in a row right and you're busting my chops and it's because it, expectations are not aligned and that's a recipe for trouble so to, to go back to the question is that yes i've seen it all happen but i i've learned that i just share the information there's no guarantee and and try to educate someone so they can make the best decisions for themselves. No, I think that's I think that's really valuable. And that's such an important part that I think a lot of people kind of stray away from because with real estate, a lot of it's public information anyway. Like a lot of the like the deal information about it is public, but like a lot of times 
people don't like to share too much information about their deal, about their experience. You know, it's not like you have to, you know, you, like you can be a private person and not, you know, explain every single part of it. But I think it's important, especially with the age of information we're in now to be able to share your experience to then help other, everybody else, you know, especially avoid mistakes you've made. Like, you know, I've made mistakes that I'll never forget and I'll never do again, you know, buying this duplex I'm in now and like just things like that. Like we listen to bigger pockets. We hear their episodes, you know, that it's all feel good information they have, you know, you're going to be free, you know, all this kind of stuff, but it's like not like the nitty gritty, like real information. It'll help you make the right decision when you're in the And there, there are pieces of it, like in, we listen to them, you know, for a reason, because you can, by being a a problem solver, you're able to take information and take the good, throw away the bad and, you know, build yourself up like that. And I feel like we both have, but I, the reason that we, you know, something that we really wanted to focus on with this podcast was I'm going to tell you the exact numbers. I'm going to tell you exactly what I bought it for, exactly how much money it took me to put down how much I needed to save up to do that, what reserves I needed to, to feel comfortable and go to sleep at night. You know, all, all that stuff is like super important. And like, that's this part, like we, we've had a ton of guys on, on even our podcast that like, they don't want to share the numbers because it, it seems boastful at a point. And I understand that too, but the, the purpose of this podcast is not to boast, you know, we're, it's not either of our goals to just, oh, look how great I am. It's, it's like, no, this is everything we, we were talking about in the beginning, like the, why we did the podcast. It was, you know, oh, Jake, Jake bought this triplex and, and there's a lot of speculation in the air, you know, oh, you know, maybe his dad had money, you know, you know, th- like little things that like oh maybe you know something happened this and this and it's like to demystify that stuff and it's like you you talk about these people buying millions of dollars of real estate and it's like well how like (laughs) how did you save the money how did you were you frugal in your lifestyle were you just rich from the beginning like that stuff is super important and that's what we've been trying to just like push out is just that that nitty-gritty stuff yeah the full transparency pretty much right yeah, and, and the truth is, I've seen it long enough that nobody wants to share the losers. And no mm-hmm. one wants to say, it, it takes a lot, it takes a lot to, and confidence to say, hey, I, I bought this, I expected this, and I ended up here, or I actually sold it, and, and I lost money. Right. But the truth of the matter is, every real estate investor has losers along the way. And losers, by definition, might be they lost literally lost money, or loser was, hey, they thought they were going to uh, expect a 12% uh, average compounded rate of return, and they ended up with 3%, right? Because yeah. when you really dig into it now, I mean, and, and you know, what, what's it mean after your tax returns and your write-offs? And you guys can, you know, when someone talks about a return on their investment property, most people don't talk about the tax returns and, and the depreciation and, and getting all that stuff. So, I mean, it's great stuff to just, just be authentic and share it. And, and that's what you guys are doing. And, that's, and I, I see that a mile away. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I kind of wanted to like jump back and go back and review some of the things you had mentioned before. I, you did speak about subdividing a property earlier. And that's something like something that I thought was really interesting because it just opens a door for, of possibilities because we're all in, like we're in the same area. So it may be different depending on your township or locality. But could you explain kind of how that process worked of how you turned that two properties into four? I think you said. Yeah, two into five. And it was uh, a combination with the property we had purchased. And then uh, we, there was a lot of building going on in that 2004, 5, 6 range right in there. 
roughly, and um, and we we got the idea that hey, they're they're knocking down places. We had an older place; it was going to need more rehab after we had rented out a handful of years. And we went to the local municipality. We asked the zone to sit down with the zoning officer, and we said we have this place, and we're interested in building a twin here, and or maybe we're we're looking to put three together, three uh, townhome. And we were just a little bit short on the frontage, all right, because. When you go to the, the zoning office, they're going to tell you what the building envelope has to be and what can be built by right and where you need a variance, et cetera, et cetera. So we went and took the entrepreneurial spirit and went to try to figure it out. We um, actually took that. We went to get a variance and a variance um, is a whole nother discussion, but it didn't work out because we were going to try to put three on our property and that didn't work. So again, through failure. Uh, we learned like, oh man, we couldn't do it. So we went to the neighbor. We asked to buy about four feet of his property. He wasn't willing to sell it. So then we got creative again and we said, hey, how about we combine our properties? And the way it worked out, uh, I do not remember all the numbers, but uh, basically he ended up with a brand new town, 2,000 square foot townhome with very little out of pocket. And we got the four other properties. That's and so And so that's what ended up, again, it was a real... It got really complex. It took a long time to do it. And um, and then we ended up selling those uh, properties to a builder. And uh, you want to talk about getting kicked in the teeth and, and luck? We sold it months before the market collapsed. And we had no idea. Like we weren't, right. we had no crystal ball. We had just, we had debated, uh, Eric and I had decided like, all right, do you want to learn how to build from the ground up? And we literally debated it. And I said, nah, I don't think I want to learn how to build from the ground up and going to get those types of loans that wasn't in our wheelhouse so we decided to sell it and we sold it and um and a, a developer who just still does a lot of work in the area he made it he still made money on it but not nearly what he thought he was going to make sure. because the, the market collapsed again if we had held those properties months longer oh it would have been a whole different story yeah no that's that's crazy but again awesome like yeah, it's it, a very like we talk about getting creative with financing and that's definitely up there of like top creativity for that just like being able to hand that your neighbor a property for yeah. you know just yeah to get, yeah <laughs> like, seriously that's awesome. like here like, that's you get a, you get a new house we get everything else like that i i think that's that's super cool um so so now you've done you've done these deals you did the fha for unit how how did things go forward or, or, and sorry, the FHA, you did that straight up, no, no partners or anything. Correct. I, I did that. Was and, that uh, your first deal with no partners? Was that my first one? I think so. Okay. I think that was my first one with no partners, but I got to tell you the lender I had at that time, I actually remember being in his office and, um, he, and, uh, him talking to, to get that one through, I, the lender, the lender was so key and I still, whenever I see him, I still thank him to this day because he, I was on the phone when he was talking to the underwriter to try to get it through. Uh, because at that time, whatever the underwriting guidelines were, and he's like, no, legitimately, this is an investor who's going to live there, but he's, he's, he's not buying it as an investment. He's actually going to live there. And I was actually in his office a few times where the underwriter was debating on some of those guidelines. And, and again, my point of saying all that is it's critical to have the right lender. Oh yeah. We, we've had Todd and Dylan, two, two of our guy like two guys that have went through all of our deals with, there are lenders, um, with cross country and they, th with this last deal, you know, I, the only way that I was able to make it work with the, the purchase price and, and everything with the deal that we got 
was because they, they had that 1031 exchange coming. They needed, you know, we had four weeks. I, I was like, hey, we got four weeks. Like, or I think it was a little less. I think it was July or June 14th or 15th. And then July 9th was when settlement had to happen. So it was tight. And I was like, you know, I asked him originally and he was like, yeah, July 23rd, we'll, we'll have it done. And then I sent that back. They were like, can you do July? We can only do these numbers if it's July 9th. And I, you know, the whole deal was because of him and because of the relationship we have with him. Like he, he's a friend now. And like, you know, I, I would return the favor in any way, shape or form that I could for him. So it's just, uh, like you said, it's, it's very important. Do you have this, have you been using like the same guys throughout? Have you had to switch up a lot? Have, you know, your like core team of, you know, title, insurance, uh, lending, like, are those guys like your guys or do you kind of, have you, have you used a lot over the years? It's changed over the years. I would stay with them for a while, but uh, the one I was just talking about, he ended up going in and managing many mortgage offices. Mm. So he got out of the, because of, just because of different career paths um, and then buying an office and getting involved that way. So it's changed over time, but the relationships are still there. The questions I still go back to ask them for, but not everybody's not necessarily in the same spot. Sure. but to talk, but it's so critical to your point of building your team. Mm-hmm. Like it's building your team and, and being okay. Like for lenders, being okay that you might have a few lenders you work with. And because person A has this product and person B has this product or yeah. working with realtors because somebody, somebody knows Souderton, somebody knows Lansdale, yeah. somebody knows Philadelphia. You know, it's just, it's building, uh, it's building the team and having those critical resources. I think you are always building the bench, so to speak. Yeah. I think you it's are always building. Yeah. Sorry, I think it's just funny how the better somebody is at their job, like the shorter amount of time they'll be doing it, just because they're just going to advance that much faster. Yeah, absolutely. You're so right on that. Yeah. yeah. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's good. The um, so so now going past that, the FHA four unit. What what was your your next steps? Uh, I think after that one, uh, I moved in. At that point, I think the next place I moved in with my wife Joy, right who's my wife and um and uh we lived in so that's where i stopped buying places and living in them if i'm remembering right then we we lived in another place in conchahokan so then after this back to partners back to just buying as investments were you doing them personally well you know what what was kind of the track going forward uh partners okay partner partners uh for the next uh for the next two or three. Well, that's a question that we've gone over on the podcast. You may have heard us talking about it is like, is our partnerships a good idea for our situation? Should we have, like you said, the money and the equity split? Is that like a good, like, how does that work? You know, is it repeatable? Is it scalable? Is it something that's like something that would be a good replacement for the live in, you know, buying a house, claiming residency, that kind of a thing. And I guess, my question is, how do you tackle partnerships for your specific strategy? Yeah, you got to, you got to, it comes back to communication, 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 because if I team up with uh, Jake, say, and I buy it like, hey, he likes the deal I have and we buy it, then Caleb, you're thinking like, man, I, I wish I was a part of that. Or, hey, uh, I buy one and you guys are like, well, I thought we were partnering on that. So it, it's, um, if you're going to get involved with partnerships, as nobody wants to have the uncomfortable conversation up front. But you want to have that and think of all the worst case scenarios 
And then if it's not going to work out great, you don't have to get any attorneys involved. Right. But if you run into problems after the partnership together, now you're fighting with attorneys. Now you're 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 spending a lot more money uh, with the attorneys doing it. So are partnerships good? Yes. But you just got to you got to you got to I guarantee partnerships over time will change not always for negative reasons, just life reasons. Mm -hmm. And you just got to, you got to be on your toes. So, and, and that's where, again, I mentioned earlier, you guys are doing so good. You're eventually, you're going to have people who offer you money and, mm -hmm. you know, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't like that deal. I'm going to, I'd rather wait. And then the partner's kind of pushing you like, Hey, and then all of a sudden you, you concede a little bit on your values, just a little bit. And then you're like, man, I shouldn't have bought that one, but I bought it because we had this 200,000 in the bank mm -hmm. and we had to put that money to work. So if you're going to get involved in partnerships, eyes wide open and uncomfortable communication up front. Have you had any horror stories with partnerships personally? Uh, personally, no horror stories, but I can tell you this, that um, motivations have changed over the years. For you or for them? For everybody for everyone, in the partnership. Sure. And what I mean by that is somebody wasn't, we used to run down and do the painting ourselves. And we used to run down on a Saturday night and, um, and get rid of some trash at a property. But all of a sudden, you know, families start and things happen and one partner doesn't want to run down there. All right. So you take care of it a few times, but when it's five, six, seven times, and then all of a sudden, again, we're all still very good friends and, and everything is good on that end, but you, you decide not to put more money to it. And I've sold a couple places because all partnerships are on the same page, but everybody doesn't want to put the same effort Mm. toward it so they don't break down because of bad communication it's like hey i'm not interested to go on a saturday night and so and so hasn't been there four times in a row so you know yeah no that makes sense what has been your role in in your more recent partnerships like what it what is you know you come everyone comes in offering a certain value you know what what has that been for you personally it's the real real estate experience, especially okay. the property management experience from, you know, knowing what the rents are, listing it for rent, doing the lease, doing the property management, all that stuff. So it's, it's bringing that knowledge. So are you doing that in lieu of cash as well? Like, or maybe some cash plus that, or how, how have you been structuring things like that? No, it's all been the, it's all, we're all bringing something to the table okay. and cash is, is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not, uh, broken up differently now, okay. which, which I've learned is a very hard partnership to do. And that's why I'm not saying I would never do it again, but it's very hard to balance sweat equity and cash. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you have any like core principles that you apply to all your partnerships in real estate? Uh, the one, th what I talked about is communication. Mm -hmm. So we, they're not written down, but communicate, communicate, communicate. And it doesn't mean text and email. And all that stuff. And text is uh, can be uh, efficient, but not always effective. You got to get out in front of it. I've learned to get face to face with people. So it's not many. It's just communication. Um, I've learned. Look, I've learned communication through property management. When the tenant has an issue, I'll go down and get meet them face to face. And because it just it's so you know everybody can be a keyboard warrior sure. and say how bad things are. So my answer to you is just communication and uncomfortable communication and face to face or on the phone or these days on Zoom. Um, is what's critical to the partnership because you don't want that to fester that so-and-so hasn't done X, Y, and Z in time. They might be running into a jam at home, but if you communicate, at least you have a chance. Sure. No, that makes sense. And yeah, especially like setting expectations, like you said, like if you want everything to be, you know, equally balanced between the partners, you know, having that conversation up front is just 
you know when you're messing up as a partner like you're not gonna like you know do the wrong thing and be like oh i didn't know you know like you absolutely know so when that hard conversation comes up you know you're in the wrong because you set those up front you know through that communication so i think that's and if you, go ahead. yeah and, if, and sorry and if you add um uh, three or more people you got to be careful of people teaming up against the other person oh, yeah. so now you're out saturday night hanging out with one of the buddies and you're, you're a few beers in and you're like so and so and you just start grinding on them mm-hmm. and and that can wear man because all of a sudden someone gets in your head or a lot of time i've seen a uh, significant others at home like uh, uh wear on somebody um uh that reminded me of a partnership where uh three or so buddies got together and um they haven't talked in many years because it didn't work out mm-hmm. and because uh you know from this from the information i gathered was that significant others were giving someone a different opinion blah 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 and you got to be careful of the teaming up, so to speak, or somebody getting in somebody's head, especially if it's three or more. What's your biggest group of partners you've been involved with? It was that first partnership uh, where that land we ended up subdividing. I forget if it was about 15 or so people. But remember, we were in our early 20s and the smallest investment was literally $500. So we went out to everybody. We had very little money. Right. We went out to everybody and everybody, family, friends and, and said, yeah, you can be in whatever you want. We would take anything. And we literally did a partnership from 500. And I forget if it was 10 or 15,000 was the biggest one. That's and, so awesome. And um, yeah, and it just uh, just made it work. So what, when you were breaking down kind of your role in the partnership, what roles are other people filling in, in that same partnership? Uh, you got the uh, handy person for sure. The person who's going to do the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the person who's going to keep you guys on track. Mm-hmm. So meaning, hey, we got to meet uh, meet monthly. We got to meet quarterly. We got uh, some things for the partnership. Here's some things we want to do for the house, and um, and then the other one is uh, is real estate related, just right. market values, stuff like that. Okay, so in because to me, all here in those three, you know, you you have an extremely valuable role, and the handyman has an extremely valuable role. The the other one. Like, hey, the, we the got the project a, manager. The that's project a, that's manager, a, as someone who's worked on teams before, and like across, especially like important, like involving a lot of other people outside of your core team. A project manager is something that's extremely important to keep the ball rolling because without that, you get caught up in your daily tasks, and those deliverables or those awaiting on tasks just get clogged up and then you hit a deadline and then all these things are going to take even longer because you haven't been following up with these people on it so it's a super important task for sure because it seems like what you said was the deal management is what you fulfill where you have the intake and the outflow of the real estate where you're buying and selling you have the house management the people who make the product pretty much the you know fixing everything up and dealing with all the issues and then the project manager who like i said deals with the, the task flow Oh man, yeah, because you got left brain, right brain, and like you said, there's accountability with a project yeah. manager. I know I would always be trying to do better, better, and better, and that's why I need a good project manager to go. Nope, we got to do it. It's race day, so to speak. Like, yeah. let's go. So, um, yeah. With, with the with the handyman partner, or do you actually have like one of the partners that's out there doing the work, putting the the sweat into it, or is he just kind of managing the handyman and the contractors and stuff like that? Uh, both. Okay. So he's he's gotten so good now that he he has a team of people who he'll who'll reach out to and uh, and he'll do some work himself and and for the you know once the properties are up and running like we'll pay him for as a regular contractor for the for right. the maintenance items. 
that is, as, as you guys have know and will continue to know, the, knowing a good handy person is such a key. I would pay top dollar for a person who you know is going to communicate with the tenants, who's going to take care of it and just do it the right way as a, and, and is going to say, hey, this job needs the $300 job, but hey, I, you don't want to hear this, but this is a $2,000 fix, but you're going to fix it for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the right way to do this is 10000 So you have trust. Yep. And when you have trust with a handy person, like I do not even ask for estimates, not quotes, like, yep. and I pay them right away. Like I've learned that through my own property management. Matter of fact, when somebody comes on board uh, and someone wants us to manage a property, just as much as they interview us, we interview them because it's like, hey, I want to let you know we're not going to get the cheapest person in town. Right. We're, we believe in customer service and taking care of tenants, and we're going to get the job done mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to you know looking for the cheapest person, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. No, that that makes a ton of sense. I've been confronted, like you said, like people, oh, you know, you, you seem like you know what you're doing. I'll bring cash. You know, I, I can would you be interested in doing something like that? And then I, you know, start to think about, okay, this person's going to bring cash and put their hands up. Like, and then I'm going in and I'm thinking about all, all the different variables, you know, okay, I'm I'm managing forever. I'm going to be responsible for fixing stuff or paying someone to fix it. And part of my value that I feel like I have is the ability to do a lot of that handyman stuff myself. When it comes down to that, like in the partnership, like you're saying, I wasn't sure really how to break that down in the fairest way because it's like, okay, I can either charge what another handyman would charge or I don't. And that's part of my equity. And we, you know, and we split the cost of materials. And how do you guys normally handle stuff like that? We, uh, we, it can go both ways, and that's why over the years we've talked about it up front. Okay. So everybody's on the same page. Both ways work, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But both all partners have to be comfortable with, uh, hey, it's going to be time and materials, or hey, I'm, I'm you know. Because what is the value to the fact that you want to go out on Friday night, but now you got to run down and do the plumbing repair, right? Like, so you could pay a plumber at 85, a buck 35 an hour. And but you just you just got to make the decision like, hey, I was supposed to go out with my buddy and and now I got to go be there from I've been at properties at two in the morning. I've been there. Right. Like you, like how do you how do you define that in a partnership? It's really tough. So there is no perfect answer in the way you're going to break up the partnership. Mm-hmm. But talk about, hey, I'm going to apply this to equity. We'll recalculate the Google Doc at the end of the year and I'll keep track of everything because, you know, what ends up happening is that. You shouldn't wait a year. You should do it every month. So if there is a, a dispute or a disagreement, you solve it then, and and everybody's on the same page. Because the second that I say, hey, that job really should you should really only apply five hundred to our equity because so and so, someone's not going to be happy. Right. And it's funny that you say that too, because I talked to a bunch of people about that as well, and like, kind of the the conclusion that I made in my head was like, okay, based on everyone that I talked to, is like revisit at the end of the year, disperse payments at the end of the year, talk about, you know, stuff like that, keep your reserves up. And then, okay, now we have this bank, do we want to do another deal? Do we want to take our cash? Like, but you're saying it's more beneficial to do monthly. Um, well, yeah, it keeps those issues smaller, which makes if you sense. let them build up, you know, you come to the end of the year, and you have six discrepancies, you know, versus one at breakfast, right? You know, it's going to be a much different conversation. I think when we ran the numbers on 
the cash equity split. It's just like there was no like like you said no clean way to define how the equity gets applied and then how the cash gets split and then you just kind of have to like just agree oh is it going to be a 50 50 60 40 you know it's how much work is it how old is the house you know how many calls are we going to get so yeah i think what you said about it being a a tricky you know conversation regardless of how you split it is just you know the only answer to it it's just it's entirely up to the scenario yeah and and you're going to by meeting monthly there's something called in the science and, you know, all the fancy smart people beyond me, you know, it's, it's talked about healthy conflict. So if you get together with your partners and nobody says anything, there's probably somebody who has an issue. They're just not comfortable bringing it up. So by forcing everybody to talk about it and creating healthy conflict, you're actually, this is getting way deeper than, than. No, than I actually uh, just read a book about that. Like the ability to have a team have a conflict with each other and then work through it you know strengthens the bond between everybody and the that fact that you are care enough to have a conflict about it you know shows like that you want to actually like get to you know the other side of that conversation yeah yeah and and uh because when you're have when people get fired up it's emotional and it's so hard to listen when you're emotional and that's what i talked about a lot in that negotiation course i just taught like you're trying to negotiate with someone but they're fired up and they're not listening and it's the same thing with a partnership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's. Uh, I think it was called "Daring Leadership." Was the the book? It was a, it was a good one for sure. Something that I wanted to ask you about was how is the property management business been for you, and what are your plans for the future? Are you planning on scaling it? Are you planning on separating it from your real estate, like the agency part of it, or what are your plans, and how's that been? Uh, it's a great question. How's it been? We've learned a lot. We've grown a lot. And um, along the way, we've um, come across, uh, I guess, two property management opportunities to purchase other businesses that didn't work out that we didn't get to the, the finish line on. So it goes back and forth. So I have no perfect answer on, on it today. But it's um, uh, from a real estate, a realtor perspective, it's good because you make a, you make a few dollars on it. Um, and you build a lot of great relationships. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you take care of someone and they're an investor and they appreciate it. And then they're like, hey, it's time to sell this one. Or, hey, it's time to 1031 this one. So there's a lot of synergy that um, can come from it. But um, it's not, you know, property management is not the most exciting thing in the world. It's blocking and tackling. And most of the time someone is not happy, uh, whether it's a tenant, an owner. It's just not a a very rewarding yep. business. Yeah, no glamour in property management for sure. And I guess another question was, how is it different for you to manage handyman versus realtors? And how is that like? How's that been for you? That difference? Uh, it's it's uh, it's been good in the sense that I've I've learned through failure again. Uh, my lack of communication causes the problem. So you know, just I can I can learn if someone is. Uh, is um, going to be good at what they do and if they're going to follow through. So it's, it, I think uh, teaching, coaching, and training agents has helped me in my communication style and my ability to work with handy people and contractors. And, and it also, I can see a mile when I come across someone who's great and I have a few of them, it's like, do not lose them. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, property managers, if they're going to charge X, Y, and Z, but you guys, if you get to the point where you use a property manager, it, don't worry if they charge X, Y, or Z. You find that person who is just really good at what they do, pay them for yeah. X, whatever it is, X, Y, and Z, because I've gotten those calls. Uh, we don't do the city of Philadelphia, and someone will ask for a referral, and I'll pass along a referral, and I'm like, whatever you do, get comfortable with the property manager. Do not worry. Yes, you want to worry about the rate, but don't, don't price shop. Do not price shop, because every time your place is vacant, every repair, 
you want someone to first off no one's ever going to take care of a property as good as you are yourself yep. and if you're if you're giving it to a property manager do, do not price shop that's a that's a really valuable uh, good piece of advice because i could see myself finding the cheap you know absolute uh, bottom dollar yeah because <laughs> you know that's how investors work most of the time you know we're trying to find the <laughs> the, the best deal but the deal is the value, you know, you know, trading that value if it correlates. Well, the value is you not having to do it. Exactly. And so I'm saying like the value in a crappy one is nothing. Yeah. So like they're paying a lower rate for no value. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it, yeah. it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And when, I, when you guys get that $700 bill, you're going to want to know that the person who charged it and whether it was the property management or the contractor, you just, if you trust them, you're going to be good with it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't trust them and you get that $700 bill, you're going to be like, wait a second, what happened here? Right. And, and so, and, and again, you might've saved on rate, but now you end up with the $700 bill when it could have been 425. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How, uh, what area do you guys do? Uh, we cover, if you, if you stuck a pin in Conchahokan and you went out about seven to nine miles from there, that's roughly the range. Um, we'll stay. And if we get someone further outside of it, we'll again, we'll have a conversation up front. Uh, maybe it's somebody we know and we'll let them know that, hey, our, our core people aren't out this far, but if there's a spot where we can help somebody out, we might help them out at that point. Is is Are we talking about just property management or are we talking about where your agents service as well? Oh, man, we got 39 agents. Conchakin is the middle. We cover, uh, you can circle 20 miles around all the way through Philadelphia <laughs> up to the Jersey line and then way out into the burbs. I mean, with 39, we pick Conchakin because it's a central location. Nobody has to come to the office this day. Everything can be done online in the cloud and Zoom and all that stuff. So uh, we, it's an amazing range that, uh, that we've built over the years. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to go back to the communication on initial partnership and asking the tough questions. What are a few of those tough questions that you think are extremely important like i'm sure there's a million but what are some key ones that you shouldn't miss uh the key one is hey uh mr mrs partner if this goes south what's our plan meaning we each put in ten thousand twenty five thousand fifty thousand if it goes south and we have to put in more money how much do you have Hmm. how much how deep are you willing to go the second thing is the second thing is uh because somebody somebody will say to you hey this is, this is the 50000 I have. I do not have anything else. Cool. You know that up front. Mm-hmm. And someone will say, look, I'm in 50. I got another 25. I do not want to spend it because everyone wants to talk HGTV when you should be talking about the other stuff, right? Yep. Let's talk about, hey, we, we got to spend more money because do, that's another part of partnerships is that it sometimes will be times to put in money because, hey, you need the, you need the new roof. And you didn't know, think you would need it now, but you know it's going to be a good investment for the long term. But all of a sudden, someone doesn't have 5,000 a partner to kick in. And then what do you do? So have those, how, how much money are you bringing to the table and, and what do you have in reserves? The other thing, as we've been talking about, is the sweat equity part. Like, hey, let's be clear about this. If Who's dealing with the calls on Saturday night? And, and then figure out the sweat equity part about Because it. it's so frustrating for partnerships when somebody has to get the text from the tenant. And because and, you're not hiring a property manager, you get the text. And someone's got to deal with it, even though all you're going to have to do is reach out to your plumber or let's say you just reach out to your plumber. 
you still have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And then you got to coordinate getting the plumber in. You got to coordinate with the tenant, like how they're going to get in. You got to put a lockbox on. Yep. Will the tenant be home? And then the plumber is going to be running late because they're busy. So um, again, the, the questions are, hey, how are we dealing with the day-to-day management? Have you structured a partnership where in the initial buy-in you're creating your reserves? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. We've, every, we've put in. So, it, gosh, it's, those early transactions, it wasn't much money. But if we needed 12000 to get started, we'd put in fifteen or twenty. yes. Yeah. Because so, then at that point, you know, okay, because that that's, was kind of my thought when we were thinking about it was like, okay, we're going to – the reserves are 20000 No matter – for the most part, that will cover everything. And before any of us gets paid anything – that bucket has to be at 20000 always, no matter what. So we might be having a few months that no one's making any money, but it's because of keeping that reserve up. Is that something that you guys practice as well? Yes, you, you want to have that set mark. And, and you guys, I don't think, have, have seen it quite yet, is that you're going to go through markets where it's hard to rent the property out. So you're going to end up with three, four months of vacancy. Mm-hmm. Like it actually happens. Like I've been, look, the, the market's going to change. I don't know when, but it's going to change. Yep. And um, you're going to go through three, four months of vacancy. So all of a sudden that 20000 is at nine. Yep. And and now it takes a long time to build back up. Or you thought you could get 1400 for the place. You tried it for two months and now you realize you should have only got $1,250. Yep. Uh, one of the most common mistakes I see, um, again, it's a very strong rental market right now, but just for the future is that someone will think just because they got $1,400 in the past and the market goes a little bit, gets a little bit softer, they'll try to get that $1,400 instead of lowering it to $1,250, realizing that when they, after they miss one month of vacancy, they'll never make it up yep. and, and they'll hang on too long because it's like, dude, I got $1,400 for this like three years in a row and now I got to get $1,250 and yep. I'm like, look, I'll do whatever you want, but I'm telling you, if you don't get that in the first two weeks, lower it right away because you will never make up the difference if you're using financing. That's a, an amazing tip there because like Seriously. we're we're both starting off in like one of the hottest markets. It's like it'll like always ever. go up. Like yeah. it, it could literally never go down. You know what I mean? That's like the mindset so many people have. And like I feel that in my own like in my own mind that like it can only keep going up from here. But obviously, you know, we, we all know that's not the case. It's gonna gonna go gonna go down eventually. So yeah, being able to, you know, hedge your bet against how much rent you're gonna get for the month and be able to you know, take a, a better side on the lower end to avoid that two months sitting on the market with never getting a bite because that that, that price difference is huge. Yeah, and it, and it, and the market will change over time, and as long as you're again to the point of a partnership, being prepared for it, because if you have five thousand in reserves and then you eat that up, and now it goes back to oh man, we don't have anything in reserves, and now you're going to make it up over time. Don't get me wrong, but the the cash flow in the short term can crush partnerships because sure. person X just doesn't have it and person Y does and it gets crazy. Yeah, how does that conversation go? Do you guys just meet up for a meal sometime? Be like, hey, reserves are gone. We need $2,000. Like whip out your wallets or like how does that work? Yeah, we try to um, we try to um, uh, project ahead. And then what we've learned over time is what we'll call a turn. And it'll be like, all right, we're a year away. We got tenants in for a lease. Let's just say they leave and then we got to clean. We got to paint. Uh, we got to shampoo the carpets, update it. Um, and then so we always want to make sure and, and it'll be vacant a month while we're getting everything rolling. So we want to make sure we a year ahead, we have enough money in for the turn, so to speak. Yeah. So we anticipate that 
it's going to be vacant a month or two. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to paint and carpet, try to build in a, 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 a not a maybe a worst case scenario, but not the best scenario. Yeah. And um, and that way you're you're planning ahead instead of waiting to the last minute, uh, because you'll find that your partners want to manage money differently. And what I mean by that is when some one of your partners says they have no money in the bank, they literally have zero dollars. And another partner will say, dude, I don't have any money. And they're sitting on 15 grand. But psychologically, they don't think they have any money because that's their threshold. Yeah. So you're going to learn what when somebody says, I don't have the money. It's like you really don't or you don't want to put it into this partnership because you have it planned for whatever. And having that talk right away is that understanding that. I just feel like not a lot of people, if they were asked that question – would necessarily know that about themselves. I know me personally, like, you know, it, it would have to be, I'm, I'm more in that 15 and, and over a thousand. That's like, I have no money. Like we, we've got assets. Like the, I need this money to, to make sure that these things are okay. Like yeah, if that to goes to zero, yeah. you know, what am I going to do? So like, I, I'm definitely more in that place of, of reserve. And I would probably want someone to be similar, have a similar mindset, to start with that, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily want to partner with someone that is, you know, willing to, to go to zero. I mean, maybe, I, I don't know, but that's, yeah, yeah. I, I think partnerships, the, the success is when you have different brains and different mindsets. Right. And right. so, you know, we talk about different strengths and weaknesses. So I agree. You don't want not somebody who's necessarily going to go to zero, but you want somebody who has a, who has a different brain, so to speak. Right. And it's like, man, I never thought about, I would never do it like that. If I've been successful at anything, it's because of the others around me and, right. and no doubt about that. How yeah. do you find that, like that difference, the different strengths, the different weaknesses? Is that just like something you get with networking with people where you notice like, hey, that person's good at what I'm not good at. You know, maybe, you know, I should start talking to this person or is it kind of like a natural thing that you guys just eventually just started working together? Yeah, well, with my buddies I grew up with, I, I, I know them well. And then you just learn, you meet people and you either feel comfortable. You know when someone's BSing you. And, and they only talk about the good deals and only the good stuff. And then there's other people you're like, man, I really like that conversation. And it's your ability to go, man, I never thought of it like that. And they're putting down 15. Let's say they put on an FHA deal. They're like, man, I'd rather put down 15% to get better cash flow. And you're like, no, no, let's keep it in the bank. Their way isn't necessarily wrong. Right. It's just they, they project their cash flow differently. Right. And that that that's okay. And you you're either like, well, let me let me run their numbers. Let me let me not get stuck in my three and a half percent down money in the bank. Let me let me see because they're like, well, in two years we're gonna end up here. And you whether you agree or disagree, it's your ability to look at their ideas mm-hmm. and to go, Man, I I never thought about that. If we do fifteen percent down, we're an extra hundred, fifty, two hundred bucks a month, twenty four hundred bucks a year, and in two years we're in a little bit better spot. So, you know, you can go, go a yeah. million ways. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting point of view. I'm, I'm curious what, when we were talking about the rents decreasing in a slower market, you're a property manager, you're responsible, you know, not only for your own stuff, but for other people's stuff, keeping them occupied. That's, that's the, the number one goal. So like from your perspective, do you shoot low from the hip are you like originally just like, you know, I, the, the benefit of keeping this occupied and having zero vacancy is much better than an extra hundred dollars. So we're going to go a little lower. Like how, how do you kind of attack that personally? Uh, per- well, from a property management perspective, I have that conversation with them 
ahead of time. And the okay. people I manage for, I get to know really well. Okay. Um, we're the type of property management company where we, the owners are involved, so to speak, as opposed to there, there's many different kinds of property management companies and some are completely hands-off. They don't want the owner involved at all. We're, we're still at the small size where, and I enjoy the conversations and relationships and, and we keep them in, involved. And, and I let them know because they'll be like, Matt, how high can we get? And I'll tell them and I'll tell them there's a risk on vacancy and let them, everyone's risk, risk ratio is different. Um, so we'll have those conversations ahead of time to educate them on it and, and say, hey, let's test them. And a lot of times, if they want to go the higher number, we'll test the market two weeks and then get it okay. right down to that number. Because I'll, I'll tell them up front, except for the people who, some of the people who own it cash, own it outright, they, they have a little less worry. But, but gosh, if you talk about having it during the winter time and now you have a vacant property, not only do you miss out because your rent's high and now it's getting November, December, January, now you're worried about freezing pipes. Yeah. And and not only are you worried about freezing pipe, who's taking care of the snow and the if it's not a multi unit, who's taking care of the snow and, and keeping an eye on the property, all that stuff. What's your uh, longest vacancy you can remember? When was that? Uh, I don't I it's I it's probably been six months uh, over the years, but I've been through some in the last twenty one years, I've been through some down markets. Sure. But and it's because of again the learning curve, my mistakes. Let's, most of them are my mistakes. And it's it's because not as a property manager, not having those, it, it's my not not being as good at my communication or as confident and just mm -hmm. saying, look, I'll put it there at that number because someone might look at the realtor and go, well, he wants the lower number so he can get the commission, the additional commission on the property management. Like, no, no, I mean that that can be true. I totally get that conversation, but. No, no, let's talk about, I'm about the long-term relationship. So let's talk about what this looks like over the long-term. But yeah, I think it's been, it's been many months um, in different markets and just because someone's, someone's set on their number. Yeah. I, I actually really like the two week yeah. rule, be, testing the market because we, we both, every unit that I've ever put on, we use Facebook marketplace for everything. And it's like, it's instant. Oh, oh my word. In, in the first day and a half, we have 150 people reach out. It's like, did I go way too low? Is like kind of normally that, that if that's the case, that's normally what's happening. But it's like, I don't feel that it's low. Like I, I'm constantly looking at what places are running for. I'm constantly seeing like, and it's like, I, I think I came up with a pretty valid number. And then, you know, to, to get that response, it's like, what the heck? Like that, it doesn't seem right. But by doing the two week thing, you know, maybe you get a couple and and maybe they're bad tenants and then you you lower it down. I, I think that's a good strategy. For sure. I think I'll definitely like with this uh unit in the duplex that I bought, the I had place rented in less than two weeks. So that's definitely like an an absolute, you know, you know, usable timeline to either get good news or bad news to then go forward with changing the number because, you know, if you have a uh a leeway of time before the tenants leave the place, you know, you can actually like avoid any vacancy whatsoever by using that shorter time frame to test the market at that price. Yeah. And, and the market is so, the real estate market, in my opinion, is inefficient. That's why you guys are able to find deals in this crazy market. And the rental market is very, the information is very inefficient. And the only way to do it, regardless of years of experience, is just to test it out and be quick with it, be unemotional as unemotional as you can be about it. And test the number and be like, man, I, I, I've gotten some numbers lately that I never thought I would get. And just because I've said to an owner, like, this market is a little crazy on the rentals. You want to try this? And he's like, Matt, no, I don't want to try that number. I'm like, all right, you don't have to. I just, just wanted to mention. He's like, well, maybe we'll just try it for a week. 
and uh, got numbers that he never thought he'd get. Right. Yeah, I, we're, we're seeing the same thing. I was just last night creating a binder for um, I inherited some tenants, so I'm, I'm they were paying way below market on this new place, and so I, I took everything that's available within – I think it was like 10 or 12 miles of, of our property. Every apartment that's available, that's a comp to their apartment. I put them all on a p- paper. They all had, you know, the I, I saw their square footage and all this stuff and what was the closest to them. And it was like my average for this, for a two bedroom in Quakertown, which theirs is a four. It's a two, but because the, the, sec- the two on the third floor isn't, technically to i need to add baseboard heat and stuff but it's finished but anyway it was like 1600 bucks was the the market average right now for, which is almost double than what they're paying right now which is right, crazy right so it's like I, I broke all that stuff down explained you know i want to keep you guys if i would list it right now it would probably be for around this what do you think is fair and like kind of putting the ball in their court so that they can you know make a decision. And, and I told him like, I'll keep you guys on a month to month if you want, if you want to keep shopping, like we can work something out like that. But, and this is Dion McNeely's strategy, the binder method. And he tries to get them to sign a, a longer two year lease so he can do, <laughs> uh, get the higher closer to market rent without doing a turnover and then get the lease signed with the, the same tenants at the higher rates and then keep them around for a lot longer. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just, wild because i have in the same town three other two bed one bath one's a little bigger and they're you know not rented for that much you know not you know i mean they're they're not bad they're you know 1300 uh 1400 but still like in comparison it's like is it i don't know it's is like, it worth it to try and like you know squeeze every I don't, dollar I don't out think of these properties is. yeah i don't think so either i think there's a, a balance for sure because like you said the market's gonna eventually go down you'll have some slow months people may start shopping around for cheaper apartments and then you're stuck holding the bag with some vacancy yeah yeah guys it's, it's for 21 years it's an art and a science and it's more art than science, and <laughs> and you got it, it. You're going to look for again. It gets so frustrating when I was a similar age as you guys is just looking and looking and looking for the answers, and nobody would give you the the said answer. Mm-hmm. And 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 I promise for the next 20 years, it's going to be inefficient in the rents. And sometimes you're going to it's going to be on the low side, and sometimes it's going to be on the the high side. So it's your knowledge and experience that's going to make the difference, and your ability to react quickly and go all right got 1400 the last three years and it's not there let's move quick let's get this down to 1250 because psychologically it's a loss Mm -hmm. but in the long run and where you guys are going with your investments it's not a loss because you're 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 solving the problem quickly for that year two years yeah you're at 1250 but it'll get back up to 1400 and then it'll go above it so do do you personally do you see that um okay we've got the market is this um the market's at this set amount but I know that these tenants will stay for, you know, 10 years, you know, is, is there the benefit there in locking them in and seeing no vacancy or, or is it still kind of that art and science? Like you need to balance it. If you keep them at a low rent, always you're just losing out on money. So like, you know, how do you, do you manage for other people the same exact way you manage for yourself? 
No, I, I, again, I go from the education perspective. Like I tell them what I do. And a lot of times I build relationships where they're like, Matt, what will you do? Yeah. And I'll tell them, but no, no, I provide information. Okay. And then some people are more aggressive and, and some people are pretty conservative. And, and I have some investors, the cash ones who like they're comparing it versus money in the, the bank is earning less than a half percent. Right. right. And they're like, that, that's their, that's their frame. Yeah. Is like, Hey, I don't care. I just want to don't, don't challenge the market. I just want someone in there quick. Like, right. no, don't do not. They could literally bet 1100 and possibly get 1500 mm-hmm. and they're so set in their way and they're very successful and they just want 1100 cause that's what works. No issues. Just, just keep it rolling. Yeah. So from a property manager perspective, you're just providing the education in general, it is can be good to lock people in for the long term because what's the cost of the turnover yep. from maintenance, wear and tear, if you're going to hire a realtor to list it, commission, and you know just the, the headache of it, the, the, the sweat equity part of it, about it. But I'll tell you where people struggle, struggled is that the people who purchased property 15, 20 years ago were in a historic market. And if you're locked into a two-year lease, you don't, you don't have the opportunity to sell it without tenants mm-hmm. right now. So nobody could have predicted the pandemic. Nobody could have predicted this this historic run up. Mm-hmm. But there is a little bit of a downside to locking in for the long term because life changes, stuff happens, and you, you know you can't move on and and um, and and you have tenants for two years. Again, I think most of the time it works out for the longer lease. Yeah. But I would I wouldn't assume it's 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 the best way to go. Right. Now you could still sell your home with tenants in there, but you can't. In my opinion, you don't maximize value because it just doesn't look as nice all freshly painted, new carpet, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Was um, COVID a large uh, change to your daily life, your business, how you, you know, your strategy, your outlook on life? How did that kind of like, you know, did that have any large impacts on you? Yeah, it changed changed the real estate industry for the better. It it sped up technology and uh, it made us, uh, it, it made us better if you were willing to embrace the Zoom and the online and and just it made the industry better, but it changed it where prior to COVID, it was very, very rare to do a virtual showing, meaning I'm in the house on FaceTime, Zoom, whatever. And and now it's it's pretty common. It's no big deal if you're in North Carolina and um, I have friends moving up from North Carolina and, and they saw it the first saw the house on FaceTime. Yeah. And um, so it literally changed for realtors the day to day. The realtors who didn't embrace the change, I think, have struggled and continue to struggle today. Did you see it on the property management front? Like, did you see people taking advantage of the eviction moratorium and everything like that? Or were you, like, we were both lucky we didn't have any, everyone paid on time. But, like, I know that's not the case for everyone. Yeah, yes. I've, I've seen uh, different ranges of issues. And, um, again, uh, I don't necessarily say took advantage of it because some people were truly impacted by sure. it. But there was a whole bunch of, uh, yeah, you had to be from a property management perspective. All of a sudden, you, as, that's a great example. We're talking about partnerships because if you didn't get that rent for six months and if, you know, nobody could have predicted it, right? No, right. that's that's okay. But now you got to deal with your partners. But yes, I did see um, a, a range of different issues. And again, most of them, most of them, not all of them are solved with communication and i'm not talking about email and text and certainly during COVID, it wasn't face to face but getting on the phone yeah and um i will one of the the secrets or the uh hacks so to speak of of any tenant issues is getting on the phone with them face to face mm-hmm. if you can yeah 
but getting on the phone because everybody can be a keyboard warrior and say this and do that behind uh, a text and it's it's the written word it's less than 10 percent of communication yeah so um I, I rambled on there but it's just uh it, it absolutely saw a range of different things during covid no for sure that that makes a hundred percent like the difference between like having somebody being super angry while you're talking to them versus like you know you're trying to like figure out what the problem is and like they know you're trying to solve the problem for them versus you know you ask them a dry question over text like what's the problem they're like what's the problem i'll tell you my problem you know and it's just like yeah it's i can see that going and i what part of the like the movement with covid do you guys leverage virtual virtual assistants in your day-to-day work or um have you guys embrace that new wave or fad at all no we haven't gone i mean we do just the we've embraced you know the virtual showings but uh not so much virtual assistance yet at this point but it's it's a changing industry and we will over time but right now it's uh just the ability to to zoom and and uh people to pick places out potential renters without actually going into the property so having the uh, technology that we all have just to be able to see it and do it but we're not we, we still have more to improve so now, um, you know, we're, we're near in the end. I feel like we could talk to you for, you know, <laughs> five more hours, but we don't want to hold you anymore or too much longer. Um, for someone who's been in for 21 years, who started at 24, talking to two 24-year-olds, you know, a lot of our audience is around that same age and stuff. Like, what, um, if you had any, like, a few tips or just, like, little things that, you know, I know you've shared a ton on this podcast, but like anything in particular that like you wish you knew when you were 24 that you think could be valuable for, for some of the rest of that, us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's that quote, I forget who said it, but you're not right because others tell you you're right. You're right because your facts and reasoning are right. So be careful listening to others and just, just pave your own way mm-hmm. and listen to those around you for sure. But if they say no or yes, don't rely on that. You're right. Because your facts and reasoning are right, and if you hit, and if it goes well, awesome. And if it doesn't, you've learned a lot more. Um, the second thing it took me a long time to understand this was was um, I. It took me a long time to understand how inefficient the real estate market is, and I mean it like that. So I built really good relationships with a lot of people over the years, and I could take three investors into the same property and come up with three different values. And people don't understand that, and I certainly didn't understand that at 24 because it's like, well. Partner A or person A, they're an all-cash buyer, and they want to rent it. Uh, just at, they just want to do better than their money in the bank. And partner B values it like, hey, they're a first-time investor, and they're twenty uh, percent down, or they're three and a half percent down FHA, and they value it like that. But yet they're not handy, so they have to hire it. And then investor C, they come and look at the property, and they are handy, so they can spend more because they're going to do all the work themselves. So it's understanding how inefficient the real estate market really is. And by you being confident in your, your knowledge, you're going to realize that just because Matt's been in it so th- this many years doesn't mean he's right. Like it's just a, a piece of information. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it, it, it's inefficient. And, and the two to four units are even more inefficient because um, I certainly didn't know this. I really didn't know this till I bought that one. Uh, but because as realtors, there's a lot of amazing realtors out there who are good at selling and buying and selling primary residence, but they don't understand cap rates. They don't understand net operating income. And what you have to understand is that the data that's put into the MLS is from the realtor or the owner. 
and it is so inefficient as you guys probably see oh yeah that realtors and 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 i've heard you mention it on past podcasts they it, they just don't market it the best way possible i'll say yep. and again it's just because it's they're just not investors they don't understand the difference that that one that quadplex has four separate heaters and that the real net operating income you're seeing on the mls really has all the expenses versus the one that just has the taxes taken out yep. and it's it's so inefficient so i think uh, i didn't know that again until i went through my mistakes buying a quadplex flex and learning and going wow like you it's so hard to compare cap rates at two to four units because again the numbers the data it's just it's messy yeah the comps don't don't add up you know you've got people buying a duplex for their mother-in-law you know using as an in-law suite and now they they're paying you know market single family home when the rents will never come close to what the mortgage would be on that like it almost seems like people try to make it as dirty as possible (laughs) like when they're uploading the listings on the mls like they're like how can i make this as terrible as i possibly can for people looking at it like it just seems like a a consistent trend that i i can see yeah i would say i I would i I view i just from my experience it's just because uh people don't know and as the realtor i get bad information from the owner or lack of information not bad but they just don't give me a lot. And I, right. I have enough just to put it into the MLS. But most don't. It's just a it's a niche area, the two to four units, because you're not big enough from the commercial side yet. You're still on the residential side. And a lot of people buy them. They live in one. They rent out the other. That value is totally different than someone buying it. And they have a family member live in it because their frame is like, hey, instead of $1,100 for mom to pay this, I can have her live in one. Yep. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's oh, man, there's yeah. there's many well, reasons that the numbers are messy. Well, like you said, it's uh, it's an art ver- art and a science, and, you know, we're all, painting, we're all yeah. painting different pictures here, some better than others. So it's kind of just comes down to, you know, everyone's experience they have going on because this isn't a financial game for the multifamilies. It's a lot of feelings going up because, like you said, they're not commercial yet. And, and that's yeah. been it's been to our benefit, actually, the, the dirty listings and the, the terrible two to four unit, because they're getting these, like you said, these residential real estate agents who do not understand investing. And all the three of my deals have all been taking advantage of that, of because it was put in poorly because yeah, they just left so much money on the table right. because they just didn't know what they had. Exactly. They they not only uh, whether it's they didn't know what they had, but they also you guys view it. You have a long runway ahead of you, mm-hmm. and someone might be coming to the end of that runway, so they view it one way because they started twenty years ago. Right. And then you guys are like, well, rent start here, and over the next twenty years, we can raise them to X, Y, and Z. So yeah, there's there's many. It's just understanding again. You, the question was, what could you know now? Is that just people view it differently? I guarantee, if I walked into the same multi-unit with you guys, I would just view it differently. Yeah, and it's and it would just be sharing the information, going, "Oh, I didn't think of that. I'm more confident in that number, less confident in that number." Mm-hmm. And you might see that the heater is 17 years old, and that you're like, "Man, I don't even have to think about that for another eight years." Right. And I'd be like, "No, no, like let's at 20, let's plan on having that seven thousand dollar replacement." Yeah. No, that's a that I, I think that is a really fair way to look at things like we all look at them differently and just by knowing that like how are these people playing 30,000 over asking they look at it differently than we do like and that's okay it, it, if they're beating the bank you know what's wrong with that yeah it's just 
you know, making your strategy, sticking with it, you know, taking all the information you could possibly get. And then, like you said, not listening to everybody around you saying that, you know, it could be wrong if they have no idea what they're talking about, especially and just, you know, getting after it. Yeah, getting after it and knowing your numbers. And, and uh, it's not it's not that they're overpaying. They're paying over list price. Right. But if you know your numbers are tight and and uh, one time I saw this in Concha Hockey many years ago. Somebody bought a place, 50000 through the estate situation, through a family member, and they turn around and list the property for a buck twenty a week later. And, and I had, I remember one event, this is many years ago, one investor's like, I'll never pay one twenty for it. He bought it for fifty uh, from the estate like a week ago. Like it was a very, very short time frame. I'm like, it shouldn't matter what somebody bought exactly. it a week ago for. It's like, what are your numbers? And I, I think most new, a lot of investors struggle with that because- they get caught again. It's emotional. It's not mm-hmm. logical. It's emotional. Like, well, if they just bought it for that. No, no. Here's my here's my Google Doc. Here's my numbers. I've locked in this rate. And if rents go up or down, I got some vacancy. I got some maintenance in my Google Doc. And let's go. Yeah. No, that that's a really good perspective. How can people find you? Yeah, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, the real estate GPS dot com is the brokerage. Um, is the brokerage website my and my number 610-960-1786 happy to uh continue to share with you guys and uh basically just be like you guys and be authentic and just share all the information that's awesome man and and so you you said you were doing like you know the coaching and the all that kind of stuff is that all through the same thing or do you kind of have a separate entity um for that type of stuff how like how do you publicize your classes and stuff like that. Like if someone was interested, how could they be a part of that? Uh, just reach out to me and I, I'll keep them up to date on the classes. I teach at a lot of different real estate schools uh, uh, for the agents in our office. We do one-on-one training and that's our bread and butter is understanding the individual and, 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 and one-on-one training. You know, you take a golf lesson with a group of people to be okay, but you take a one-on-one golf lesson and the, the instructor will tell me how much I suck, but at least I know exactly i suck for those reasons so yeah it's through a lot of it's through a lot of one-on-one training and and again if someone just gives me a buzz anytime i'm done the classes i've taught to uh it might be close to thousands of students now wow. and everybody has my number and they can just reach out because there's nothing to hide like let's mm-hmm. share all this again i it's just that same property has different values to everybody but it's funny i just want to mention this because it rem- reminds me because someone will come in and meet whether it's me or one of the agents in the office for the new time for the first time. And they're like, well, how do you work with other investors? Like you're going to give them all the deal. And the new, the new investor doesn't understand like, no, the same deal is not the same deal to everybody. It's not, it's just not. Absolutely. No, like there's so many ways to skin a cat, you know, and like a lot of people are going to see everything very differently. And, you know, I, I could definitely see like the training, like you were mentioning with the one-on-one having, you know, seeing exactly where your baseline is, where you're starting from, how to grow as a person from there and like getting better. You know, it's, I think that's super beneficial. And, and we both like you, especially talk about getting your real estate license. So, um, is that something you recommend for investors for them to get is their own license? Uh, it, I, I recommend, um, if they're going to learn the industry mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is some people view realtors as an investment and others view us as an expense. So if you're going to get it and you're going to learn the knowledge and, and learn how to be a realtor and how to represent yourself well, oh, go for it all day long. But if you're just going to get it like to for eliminate me to get it, the expense, that's not yeah, the you're, way. Okay, you're just going to, you're going to go through the learning curve again yeah. and 
and it'll, it'll catch you. Mm-hmm. It'll catch you because, um, look, but it's well worth it over the long term if you're going to get in and, and, and figure it out and you'll learn how to negotiate better on your half. You'll learn the paperwork better. I mean, I just spent six hours with a group of realtors on how to structure an offer. And when they left the class, they're like, Matt, we wish this class was two days long. Right. And so you can go really, really deep. I'll give you one example on for just from that class is that how do you submit an offer to the other listing agent? And the question was, and I had them break up in groups, do you put it all piecemeal into one offer or do you have separate documents? And they're like, well, why does that matter? Well, because if you if you put it all in one document, now you control what the listing agent and the seller see. So now you've merged it all into one document and you want to show them that you're a really strong buyer. You put the BFI, buyer's financial information, the pre-approval in the beginning. Because what does everybody jump to? Everybody jumps to price. Mm -hmm. So again, it's just one of many things, but it's just like, how do I, I call the agent, I text the agent, but how do I submit the paperwork that is most likely getting forwarded to the seller? And the seller is probably looking right at the number. So what do I want that seller to see Mm -hmm. first thing? Now, if I'm a weak buyer, which is okay, and I'm offering 325 for that place that's listed at 300, I might bury the pre-approval and the BFI in the back of the offer. So the first thing they see is 325. The seller is then excited to see that, oh my gosh, I listed at 300, I'm getting 325, and they're less concerned that the the pre, you know, it's the buyer is not a weak, it, they're just not as strong as the other buyers. Sure. So there's my point is saying, so if you if you're going to become a realtor, you just want to learn all the different facets for it no i think that's really good because i I, i've i took kind of what you said as like okay i i was internalizing it i was trying to learn the industry i wanted to be doing this long term but it's to eliminate an expense it it, it was both things like i I wanted to to learn all that stuff but i also wanted to be self-sufficient i think the self-sufficiency for me was number one um but because like you you know, and we, like we talked about, there's a lot of realtors that don't know investing. And it's like, you know, a lot of them will say, oh yeah, I can help you, you know, buy a duplex or buy a quadplex or whatever. But that's normally not the case at, or they will be able to submit an offer for you, but they don't know. And they don't know how to guide you. And I feel like for me and for a lot of guys that are listening and that, that want to start, you know, house hack number one year later, house hack number two, like get into that groove, you know, buying a property a year and if you're actually putting the time in to learn the industry it's 100 percent worth it but like you said if you have no interest in learning the industry i, I just feel like it kind of goes hand in hand if you want to buy every year maybe that's just my perspective that i would assume that you want to learn the industry but i guess for some people that might not be the the same motivation yeah, and it's yeah the motivation why they get in it is 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 critical. Right, and um and it's 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 like any skill, right? You just have to yeah you have to put your ten thousand hours in. You got to learn it, and and you either get really good at it, and and I guarantee over time you'll figure out a way to save money. But I would argue all day long if you had a realtor who understands it all, they're gonna they're gonna find you some some uh, inefficiencies and get you get you some good deals over the long term. Yeah. Awesome, man. This was a really, really awesome episode. We're, we're super glad um, that you gave us some time. You know, what's this been? Almost two hours. Yeah, coming up. Yeah, it's been uh, so much value you've given us. Just yeah. like even for me personally, just some of the things that I had questions about and things I hadn't even thought about before. Just, you know, definitely opened my eyes up to some of these new things. So, Matt, really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, hopefully we can, you know, get more 
information from you in the future. But uh, again, really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to share. And you guys motivate me. You guys get me excited. You guys being authentic, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, brother. Thank you. All right, man. Peace. Take it easy.